The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations by the American Waterworks Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water, and by Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. This is Session 185. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. we got a lot to do today. we got a fantastic interview coming up with Clara Nagy-McBain. We also have a Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale. Uh, but before we get to Reese and Clara, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, and Black and & Veatch. And I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through that firm's sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that little simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. That would be a great way to help others find out about the podcast. And it'd be, again, greatly appreciated. So thank you so much. Uh, we've picked up a few five-star ratings since uh, since I last kind of talked about uh, the ratings and reviews. Uh, and we got a great um, uh, five-star rating and a terrific review by KXTLN292 via Apple Podcasts uh, in Canada. So thank you very much for your terrific rating. Here's the, I'll read the review real quick. It says, five stars for water values. I am a big fan of the Water Values podcast, the host, and the guests that are brought on. It's a great way to stay in tune with a variety of topics in the water sector, interesting conversations that are well thought out, an important aspect of society that is not well understood by the general public. Well, KXTLN292 up in Canada, thank you so much for that great rating and the terrific review. It's greatly appreciated. Uh, now let's get to this uh, month's Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale, who's going to give us a timely update on the Biden administration's take on the lead and copper rules. So here we go. All right, Reese. Well, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap. How are you doing today? Pretty good. We're, uh, <laughs> we're still in the new year, so uh, we got all of 2021 ahead of us. So I'm I'm still excited. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of lot of news uh, going on. The Biden administration has now been sworn in uh, since we last talked, and so there's a lot going on. So what what is kind of at the forefront of all this news that's percolating to the top? Well, no doubt there are a lot of questions. I think one thing that came to mind, at least for our team this week, was the there's it looks like the Biden administration at least is going to put a pause on the recently uh, altered um, lead and copper rule. So basically what they have, like 60 days, kind of take a look at it. It was one of the last things the 
previous administration had sort of revised and they had sort of altered the um, replacement rate timelines and inventorying schedules. And so it's a big question about lead water quality that has been hanging out there. I mean, obviously because of Flint and, and what's happening in other cities, Pittsburgh, among others. And so are we going to finally get to a, a plan to execute on? And, you know, so that's what's interesting. And just sort of where we're starting to see change with the new administration. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to kind of fill us in on, on the, the lead and copper rule in terms of kind of a little more than nitty gritty, but I, you, you mentioned uh, Flint and, and that's another thing that's transpired since we last talked, right. Is that charges have come down that they've indicated that uh, the Michigan officials are going to be indicted on that or have been indicted on that. Have. And also now that I think I don't, they're also going, since we last talked, they're going after the previous governor. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's whether I'm not going to be the one to judge on that, but I think it is, it's wide sweeping. It's a problem. It's in the news. And I think it's something to a point where the public and the, they're starting to understand it and that the risk to their water supply, the challenge is, I mean, one of the things back to the lead and copper rule, sort of like Flint, you don't know if there's a problem unless you're testing for it, unless you're monitoring. So, and it's not, the lead can be in the pipes and it can be safe. But as we learned from Flint, if you start changing, you know, your water source or supply or your chemical makeup of treatment, the public gets impacted. Right. So. Right. So, so back to, back to the lead and copper rule. So the, the, the pause on the implementation of, of, Kind of what, like you said, one of the last things the Trump administration did uh, in terms of those those lead and copper rule adjustments. What's what what does all that mean, practically? Well, look, I think you know it's an old rule. It's from the '90s, so it's not new. I think the 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 issue there are a couple of big factors related to it, and one is you know who's going to pay for it. I mean, Bluefield Research. We did some research on it a while back. To um, replace all these pipe lead service lines, which are not really always on the utilities watch, right? They're kind of inside the fence of the property owner. So that's kind of one of the challenges, but it could cost as much as $32 billion to replace all of these, right? And there are millions, I think 15 to 20 million people that are potentially impacted for this and really across some mid-Atlantic, Midwestern states uh, where that impact is. So the question is, one, what's the timeline for inventorying to figure out, you know, well, who has lead, lead in the in the water supply, but also in the pipes, which is still an unknown in many cases. I think the other question is like, what once it's identified, how long will it take to replace those pipes? Now, it's gone back and forth. The Trump administration made some alterations before it left where the replacement rate was once identified was going to be um, 3% needed to be replaced per year within the existing respective networks. What I think it was previously was three was 7%. So it's a question, you know, how fast or how accelerated will the replacement program be? And at the end of the day, as I mean, I get it. Someone's going to have to pay for this. So is it the utility? Because I mean, I, I live in Boston, I live in this typically older cities. I live in an old city, I live in an old building. 
do I have lead in my pipes or in the water supply? Is that Boston Water and Sewer's responsibility? Or is it mine? Or is it the municipality? Or ultimately, because no one wants to take responsibility or can afford to do so, is it the federal government's responsibility to step in and say, for the bigger, better, common good, this is what we're going to have to deal with? I don't know what the ultimate answer is to that. Yeah. Are, are there opportunities for uh, firms to kind of capitalize on on what's going on with with the rule? Absolutely. I think one is the inventorying or problem identification. And I think we've talked about companies like, and we even had them on this guest, Megan, from uh, 120 Water. You know, this is something they got into is to help uh, companies or foreign firms more readily identify lead in the water supply through testing. I think that's sort of a basic um, step one. So that is an opportunity. Companies that do that, you know, sensors, monitoring, laboratories, uh, you know, companies like IDEX, you know, they do laboratory testing. It's an opportunity. I'd say the second is just it's going to take people just to go out there and dig up pipes, right, I think, and replace the pipes and, and the connections and the lateral. So if that's the case, then their job's involved. It costs money. It's going to cost thousands of dollars for each connection or each home. Um, but, hey, it's work these days when we're at, you know, I don't know where we are unemployment these days, but kind of sounds good. Um, but there is there is an opportunity there. And I guess, you know, um, that's a, those are the two main ones that I would that I would pinpoint. But the big question is who pays. Yeah. Amen. There's that that's. I mean, ultimately, we, we know that consumers are going to pay. Just percentages may be different depending on, um, uh, you know, on on the policy uh, initiative that actually implements the the scheme. Yeah, I think that's you're exactly right. I mean, there's there's as they say, there's no free lunch. Right? <laughs> so the question is, you know, do you pay out of your own pocket directly, or do you pay through your water rates where? that cost is spread across an entire network of ratepayers, or do you pay through taxes where the city or some other agency picks it up? Yeah, that that's never the fun question. No one wants to see that sausage being made and how they develop those regs or policies, but yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Well, Hey, uh, Reese, it's always great talking to you and, uh, thanks for shining a light on this issue because, uh, it, I, I, I feel like it's flown under the radar a little bit because there's been so much activity. So, um, I, th- I think it was good that you you kind of illuminated this area, um, and with that, hope we have a uh, a good February, and we'll talk to you in March. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, we, yeah absolutely. We got the Super Bowl next week. That's right. <laughs> not, not that it matters to me, but uh, you know, it'll be it'll be something to do. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> amen. All right. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Reese. We'll talk to you soon, man. Right, take care, Dave. Uh-huh, bye. Well, as always, great information. Uh, from Bluefield Research uh, and Reese Tisdale over there. Uh, now it's time to get on to our feature guest, Clara Nagy McBain with Source. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Clara, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So gl- so great you could come on today. Uh, how you doing? I'm good, Dave. How are you? I am well, thank you. It's, uh, it's always good to talk to uh, a friend in the water industry. Um, for those folks who may not uh, know who you are, could you provide a little background on yourself and how you got interested in water? Sure, absolutely. Um, thank you for having me on, Dave. I've been listening, avid listener of your podcast for a number of years now, so I'm um, excited to be here. I'm glad. I'm um, glad someone other than my mom's listening. 
<laughs> Definitely. Um, a little bit of background on me. So I started in water essentially when I was born. Um, I grew up the daughter of a water and wastewater engineer um, who had you know, been providing civil engineering consulting services for the better part of about 50 years now. Um, I think he describes himself as a water buffalo. Um, so <laughs> when, I, when it came time kind of to get my formal education, I found myself right there in civil engineering. And I ultimately worked as a project engineer for agricultural applications in Southern California um, before going on to get my master's in structural engineering, um, where I ended up kind of moving away from the consulting route into more of the business and clean tech world. And then um, I landed in renewable energy, um, where I spent 10 years at the, in solar and energy storage, um, and then found myself at the intersection of those two fields, uh, which landed me here at Source. Awesome. What are you doing at Source? What's, what's kind of that? Sure. Yeah. So um, what, what I do specifically for Source is lead the business development team for North America. Um, but Source as a company, as the name might suggest, can be the genesis of many things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but ultimately, we create clean drinking water, which we call Source Water, uh, through our technology called a Source Hydro Panel. And our hydro panel looks like a solar panel, but it actually creates clean drinking water out of only two inputs, sunlight and air. Well, that, that is amazing. Um, and so, so can you, before we dive into, uh, you know, applications and things like that, I mean, how, uh, how did this come about? I mean, what, how long has Source been around? Uh, can you give a little background on the company? Absolutely. So Source was founded in 2014, um, actually as a spin-out from Arizona State University. Um, Cody Friesen, who is our CEO and founder, uh, is a professor at ASU, and he has a background in material science um, and found himself, I think it was in Indonesia, um, without, a, without any sort of drinking water. Um, and he put his genius mind to work and said, how do we solve getting drinking water to any location on earth with just, you know, the, the free inputs, so to speak, of air and sunlight. Um, and so that started the research process. And in 2014, uh, the spin-out was, uh, you know, officially started and we launched as Zero Mass Water. Um, and most recently, we actually got uh, certified as a B Corporation. So we changed our name at that moment uh, to Source Public Benefit Corporation. Um, so yeah, we've been in around for, you know, I guess it's almost seven years now. Um, and we're in 49 countries today. That's awesome. Wow. That is, that is exponential growth from what you've described. I would classify this as a distributed water solution. I mean, is that exactly, that's exactly right. Um, yep. so can you talk a little about, about how it works? You know, I mean, how do you, how do you produce clean water from those two naturally occurring inputs? Absolutely. So, um, you know, in Indiana, where you are, Dave, um, and in California, where I am, there is a, an abundance of relative humidity in the air, right? Water vapor. Um, and the, the, the system actually takes those, those inputs, those free inputs of that relative humidity in the air and solar irradiance um, and uses a combination of PV power, solar thermal power, and material science to uh, create, uh, clean and store water on board on a panel. 
Um, so that process essentially looks like air coming through the panel, that, that air is then heated up with a sol solar thermal process. That hot, wet air is actually blown across our desiccant material, which is just a very absorbent material. Um, that absorbent material is hygroscopic, so it only absorbs H2O. And then it essentially condensed into liquid water. That liquid water is stored on board on our panel, and there is an onboard ozonation system and circulation system to keep that water clean. And there's a battery to charge a uh, pump to actually just dispense the water right from the panel. Does, does yeah. it produce power too? Does it, does it self-produce the power needed to run the pumps? That's right, exactly. So it's, it's PV powered, so um, just taking solar, solar energy um, into essentially run the fan to bring in the air and to recharge the battery to keep the water circulating. That is, that is cool. Um, so can we talk a little about, uh, you know, the, the solution? Well, this, this is the solution. Let's, let's talk about what problems this, this solution that you've identified that source, that source has, where, where can it, you, you think where, you know, where, where can it provide a lot of benefit and value? We've seen centralized water infrastructure you know, shine in the last century, particularly in urban locations across the U.S., where we many uh, Americans have access to high-quality and great-tasting water. Uh, but we also know that there's tens of thousands of water systems and uh, domestic well owners that are having water quality challenges. In many of these cases, uh, those water systems, small water systems, are serving less than 10,000 people, and have these water quality challenges that have limited or, you know, maybe no funds to fix uh, the, tip, the, the problems that they're experiencing um, with the typical treatment that's prescribed. And so where we're trying to take source and where we have been successful with source are in these communities experiencing these water quality challenges. And many of these challenges have been um, in, you know, in, in problems for them for decades or generations. Um, and the specific ones that we're working with today are tribal or fall within what we call the hotspot regions uh, of the Central Valley, California, along the Mexican border in Arizona and Texas, and across Appalachia. So we're really trying to use our distributed technology to provide clean drinking water to these challenged locations in a way that is uh, less costly to operate and maintain and solving the problem now versus uh, maybe four or five years down the road. Yeah, I, I think it was very interesting that you uh, said that that you're you're serving areas in the U.S. Uh, because I think a lot of people think of this as kind of you know quote unquote a third world problem. Um, Absolutely. And so so of those forty nine countries that that source is in, uh, you know what's what's the range of of you know, economic development or economic status? I mean, are, is it is it pretty evenly distributed or is it primarily to what, you know, emerging economies? I mean, yeah. where, 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 can, can you just so talk a little about that? Sure, absolutely. So we absolutely started with that same concept, right? Like the, the Cody created this idea and this vision um, to perfect water for every person, every place while he was on a remote island in the South Pacific. Um, so automatically, everyone's brain goes to, you know, this is amazing for third world countries. How do we get, you know, how do we put funds together to deploy this in many of those countries? Um, so a big chunk of the number of countries, I would say, of those 49 are absolutely to help communities in those rural, rural and remote environments. 
Um, but in terms of volume for, for what we're doing, which is creating water, um, so the volume of water that we're creating today is actually centralized more in the first world economies than you would expect. So, for example, in the UAE, in Australia, and U.S. are our primary uh, production uh, countries. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, um, and I think that actually just to, to kind of go off that point. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I was just thinking that, um, you know, a lot of that speaks to climate change. Um, so we have more populated uh, countries and, and regions um, and with more essentially water stress. We're putting water stress on those regions. And as the climate is getting, you know, hotter and warmer, uh, we're seeing less access to water um, across across those developed nations. Yeah. I, I, I'm almost wondering if, if there are people that will uh, supplement existing water supplies by putting and I don't know if this is even feasible. Could you put it on? Put could could you put these panels like on your roof, like Absolutely. where where uh, yeah. you know, and just supplement your existing water supply? Yeah. So that's what the, the we're actually utilizing this concept, what we call fitness for purpose, um, in many locations. So you know, in the, like as you mentioned, we're fortunate in the urban U.S. to have access to this high quality water at our taps and in our toilets. Um, but in many other countries, the quality of water for drinking water is always higher than any other use. And so we're utilizing that same concept of this is your drinking water source. And then you have your more bulk water source that can be of a lower quality because it's not you're not ingesting it. Right. Yeah. So that supplementary water source is exactly what we're trying to provide. Fascinating. So how much can can you know, if, if you're talking for an average size family, Mm-hmm. Um, how, how many panels do you need? I mean, how much, how much does this produce? And I, I, I would guess some of that is dependent upon the relative humidity in the air, but right. I mean, what, what, what do you, what are the ranges you're looking at? Yeah. So our technology is kind of following a Moore's law, um, Moore's law, uh, you know, progression. Um, so we kind of tend to stay away from number of panels, but for a family of four, we would typically prescribe a water demand. So a drinking water demand. Uh, for a family, which could be somewhere between 8 and 12 liters per day. Um, and so we would size the system for that demand with the, the technology that we have. Um, today, that might be two panels. Tomorrow, that might be one panel, uh, depending on the form factor and location, as you mentioned. Um, and so the, the way that you would deploy the system is either on the roof or on the ground. Um, in more urban locations uh, for families that are interested in sustainability and also the health impacts of, um, you know, the transparency of knowing what's in your water. Um, we see people put them on their roof. Um, so Berkeley, California, there's, you know, house over here that that's got, uh, got a couple of panels on their roof. Um, but in the more remote environments, we might put a number of panels. We aggregate them together in a field, uh, what we call a field and uh, provide a kiosk um, to the community to come and fill up their, you know, they're, they're either their five gallon jugs or just their water bottles. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in, in terms of like, how big is a typical panel? I mean, is it when you yeah. see, you know, just kind of go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're fine. Um, the, the size of a panel is very similar to a solar panel. So uh, we're eight feet by four feet right now. Um, a typical solar panel is going to be six and a half feet by three and a half feet. Um, so very typical. And it's going to be tilted uh, towards the south or southeast, uh, just like a solar panel. Yeah. So uh, just out of curiosity, now you, you spent time in the renewable sector. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. before coming over here. Are, are there, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious what, uh, what lessons from the renewable sector that you've brought with you to, to, to source Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that may seem like an offbeat question, but, but it, I think it's a very relevant question, okay. Dave. Um, so 10 years ago or beyond that, you know, the cost of solar was, um, it, for an installed project, it was north of $5 a watt. Um, today we're looking at projects that are beat every other generation source and, and energy out of, you know, out of the water. So less than a dollar a watt. So coming down, um, you know, 80, 85% essentially in cost. And so the learnings that you can take from the solar energy, uh, renewable energy space into the uh, solar powered water generation space um, is that number one, cost isn't, uh, cost isn't static, right? Um, over time, um, it's our goal to be the lowest cost of quality water across the globe. Um, and that is a, a pretty profound statement because in solar energy today, you can't, uh, the cost of doing solar in the U.S. is completely different than the cost of doing solar in the UAE or than doing solar in Japan. Um, so it is, that's what's so amazing and the, to highlight the similarities, but also the differences. Um, one other, I actually mentioned this to a friend the other day, in the energy space, an electron delivered at a certain time is an electron. In the water space, the water that's coming out of your tap isn't the same water that's coming out of someone across, you know, the, the U.S.'s tap or across the globe's tap. Um, and so we're actually making it more of the electron is the electron than the, the water that's coming out of your tap, uh, you know, is different than the other person's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you, I, I think that's a, a, a great way to frame up that, that concept and, and bring those learnings from the renewable sector over to the water sector. Um, what about, uh, you, you mentioned ozonation and how you're, you know, maintaining the, the quality of the water. Uh, can you talk a little about how you're, you know, assuring that, that the water delivered is, is potable and, and quote unquote meets drinking water standards? Absolutely. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, so the, the water that comes out of our desiccant and goes into our onboard reservoir is essentially, you know, it's not distilled water, but it's essentially of distilled water characteristics. Um, and so the, the onboard, the system, we have a mineralization packet um, that has calcium and magnesium in it uh, to make the water taste, you know, as we expect it to. Um, so it tastes very good. And uh, we actually have a, a commercial application uh, for, you know, high quality water served at uh, luxury resorts, for example. Um, so the, the way that we keep the water clean is through that ozonation system. Um, so it's an onboard uh, corona discharge ozonator. Um, and so that just produces ozone um, and it has a certain CT time uh, for the amount of water that's within the panel. And that is all controlled with our electronics um, on board that's constantly not only, you know, making sure that the water's clean, but also understanding, you know, is today more humid than yesterday? Or I produced more water yesterday when I turned the fan on at this time. So why don't I turn the fan on, on this time again? So it's constantly learning. Um, and it's also communicating back to our network operations center, which is monitoring all of those aspects with the ozonation that's going into every single panel, um, how much time the water has been in, in the panel, um, and how much water is being generated. Not only, uh, not only that, but also the relative humidity in the air and how much sunlight is, uh, the panel is seeing as well. 
I mean, that's, that's amazing that you're using machine learning, artificial intelligence to help, mm-hmm. help run those. Uh, wh- when you, when you were out talking to folks about potentially installing source panels, mm-hmm. what, what are some of the common questions you get and what are some of the pushbacks on installing a system? So one of the common questions we get, which actually lends itself um, into the policy lens, which I'd love to talk about, um, is how does the air quality affect the water quality. Oh yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, And so as I mentioned, the desiccant material is what's called a hygroscopic material. And so it only attracts H2O. And so essentially the the pollution that's in the air, um, whether it's in, you know, we have systems in Jakarta, for example, that experiences some pretty pretty frequent air quality events. you know, whether that air quality is poor or whether that air quality is good, the relative humidity that is, you know, H2O is still H2O. Um, and so we've done a number of studies and are having, uh, we're going through an NSF certification process right now um, to actually prove that the air quality does not impact water quality. Um, so we have, you know, third-party um, studies done that on that ourselves. Um, but we also wanted to take it to NSF, um, you know, as the gold standard <laughs> to get that um, evaluated from their end. Yeah. Is, is, so is, is, is that the primary question or pushback you get, or are there other things that people are just, you know, concerned about? Yeah. Um, the, that is one of the primary questions we get. Um, there typically is no concern, especially when we're working with remote communities that, um, you know, we're, we're, putting this project together through a number of funding opportunities, either through the state or federal level, um, through some philanthropic donors, um, and potentially a combination of our own sources of funding. Um, And so in many cases, the end users where we're installing the panels um, are people that are honestly, they've had poor water for many, many years, if not decades. And so this is actually, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel for them. Um, And, I think that is, there's, there's not been pushback on that at all. Um, in fact, it's how quickly can you get it to us, please? Yeah. Uh, there's gotta be a lot of self-satisfaction, uh, in, in delivering that solution to those, those folks who've been experiencing poor water quality or lack of water. Um, I think that gets, that gets a lot of us up out of bed every day. You know, we're working, um, with people or, you know, these, these two girls come to mind in Madera County, California, who told me that is the reason why we didn't go to school a number of days, right? We were sick because of the uranium in our water. And then people in the Navajo Nation that we're talking with that, you know, I, I grew up with a gallon of water for a family of eight per day. Um, so it's just super impactful to hear those stories, especially when they're, like you mentioned, they're not other countries. These are in our own backyard. Yeah. So, so Clara, um, you know, what you've been describing today is just an incredibly innovative concept. What I'm just kind of curious, you know, a lot of, and you've mentioned it before that a lot of um, uh, centralized water has, has kind of, I think you used it's centralized water shined, you know, or shown from the 20th century on. Um, And so what, what can, those in the water community, the water professionals out there that are in this, that is, have enjoyed the light, what can they do to kind of help promote 
uh, innovative solutions, and because this sounds what you're proposing is a very innovative solution. How how can we how can we uh, keep pushing innovation forward and and you know use technologies like Source to help you know make a better world? Sure, um, great question. I think ultimately it comes uh, to awareness. Um, so for the water professionals listening, you know instead of uh, only thinking about uh, the centralized infrastructure upgrades that are required, um, you know, potentially put an RFI out or, you know, RFQ out for uh, what does an innovative technology look like, um, just so that you're, you, you are aware um, of what is being developed. Because, you know, source is um, an amazing technology, but we're not, we're a tool in the toolbox, right? We're never going to um, be the only solution. We want to be a part of the solution for water challenges out there. Terrific. So awareness is the key. Yeah. Um, well, that, that is, that is a great perspective. Uh, you know, Claire, Claire, you have been absolutely terrific. I mean, I have, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot. Uh, you've been, you've been terrific. Um, and you, well, well, thank you. You're, you're, you're too, you're too kind. I kind of fumble through these things. Uh, but, but, you know, I would be very interested in hearing what kind of what if you could distill everything you talked about down into kind of one leave behind message, what would it be? Sure. I think uh, the leave behind is that uh, drinking water, safe drinking water is a fundamental human right. And it's only between us, uh, you know, with unity that we've heard in this past week um, that we're able to work together to bring down the barriers uh, to really serve these people that that are, you know, deserve safe drinking water. Um, as I mentioned, source is a solution. We uh, are very motivated to be a solution for all of these remote communities, um, but we are not the only solution. And so let's work together to come up with the best solutions to get clean water to the most people. Awesome. I, 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 I applaud the message and uh, really appreciate you coming on today, Clara. You've been, again, you've been wonderful. Uh, and I've really been enjoying our, the, the, the back and forth we had when we were prepping for this. Um, so uh, for those who want to find out more about you, find out more about source, where can they go to get that information? Sure. Um, our website is source.co and my email address is just Clara at source.co. Uh, feel free to reach out. Um, I love to talk to to people in the water space, uh, get a different perspective, and uh, and talk to you know many people that have an idea of which communities we can serve best next. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for coming on, Clara, and best of luck to you. Let's keep in touch. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Uh huh. Bye. Bye. Well, what a terrific interview by Clara. I mean, really fascinating technology, and it has enormous potential to do a tremendous amount of good in the world and just, you know, just make the world a better place. And I loved her leave behind message to boot. Well, let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM one nine nine three. You can also sign up for the newsletter just Google the Water Values podcast and our landing page over at Bluefield Research's site will come up. Again, uh, the Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are separate and independent companies. We just have a, uh, a for lack of a better term, a joint marketing arrangement where they host uh, the site for the Water Values. So thanks thanks to all my friends at Bluefield for, for assisting 
uh, getting the water values out there on the web. You can also uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Just look me up. Uh, and the water values has a, uh, a group on LinkedIn you can join uh, just to make sure you don't miss any updates. Uh, well, thank you again for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Uh, again, these without these sponsors, the Water Values Podcast would not be around. Uh, the sponsors for the 2021 season of the Water Values Podcast include the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, and Black and Veatch. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.